Um, this morning, we're continuing on in our series through the Gospel of John, and we're in chapter 5, but actually, what we have this morning is like the second part of a two-part series talking about this amazing miracle that Jesus did at the pool of Bethesda. So my text this morning is going to be the Gospel of John chapter 5 from verses 10 through 18, but in the reading of the text, I'm going to cover what we talked about last Sunday and start all the way at verse 1, just to give you that kind of picture of it to begin with. So um, I'm going to read our text in its entirety for this morning, but would you mind in standing and giving reverence to the word of the Lord as I read this morning's text? Again, I'm going to begin the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 1, uh, but my teaching will really begin to focus at verse 10. Here we go. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he was already, he had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well and took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is a Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. We thank you, Lord, for your word. And we pray this morning that as we give consideration to your word, that you would move by the power of your Holy Spirit through your ever-powerful word to reach our hearts, which are often cold, which are often dead, which need your spirit to work upon us so that we can receive what you have to give us this morning. Do it, Lord, among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a pool in ancient Jerusalem known as the Pool of Bethesda. And around this Pool of Bethesda, seemingly at feast times, there would be perhaps hundreds of people gathered around, sick, blind, paralyzed, afflicted in various ways. Because there was, and we don't know exactly if it was a legend or if it was the fact, 
That when the waters were troubled, when they were stirred up, they thought it was an angel stirring up the waters. And the first one to touch the water after it was stirred was healed of whatever affliction that they had. And there was a man there on that particular day when Jesus showed up who had been in an afflicted state, paralyzed for some 38 years, and he had no hope of being the first one in the water. Jesus selected that one man out of everybody that was there, and he challenged the man. He said, do you want to be made well? The man first couldn't figure out how that could happen. How can you get me in the pool first in front of everybody else? Jesus said, listen, I've got a way to make you well that has nothing to do with getting into the water first. I've got a way to make you well by the power of God. So Jesus simply told the man, I want you to rise, I want you to pick up your bed, and I want you to walk. Three things that for 38 years had been impossible for that man to do. Yet empowered by the word of Jesus at that particular moment, he found the strength, the ability, as he trusted Jesus, as he made whatever attempt he could in those dead legs of his to stand up, to take up that bed, and to walk, he did so. But then at the end of verse 9, we find a very interesting phrase. We find that word that says, and that day was the Sabbath. You might think, well, what's the big deal about that? So it happens on a Saturday or Sunday or a particular day of the week. What big deal is that, that the man is healed on that? Doesn't that make that day even better? Doesn't it make it a day even better when God in his mercy comes and relieves a man of an affliction that he's had for some 38 years, but not in the mind of the Jewish people or at least the leaders amongst the Jews? Not in their mind at all. That's where we pick it up here at verse 10 and we read, The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. You notice what they're saying? They're completely ignoring the fact that this man had been healed. They look at this man not as a man who had been miraculously healed by the power of Jesus. They're looking at him as someone who's breaking the law against the Sabbath because he's carrying his bed is what the text says in verse 10. Now may I clarify something? It's not talking about, you know, that orthopedic twin size that he's carrying down the the road in a feat of supernatural strength. It's talking about a bed mat. We'd probably consider it to be like a thick sleeping bag or something like that. But there's no doubt that he was carrying it. Maybe it was under his arm. Maybe it was upon his shoulder. We don't exactly know. But he was carrying it, and it was noticeable because that day was the Sabbath. And among the Jewish people at that time, they had the understanding that you should not work on the Sabbath. Therefore, as it says in verse 10, the Jews therefore said, now please, I need to clarify something. And I'd appreciate if you keep this in mind throughout our series through the Gospel of John. When John, the Gospel writer, uses that phrase, the Jews, he's not speaking about all the Jewish people in Jerusalem. He's not speaking of the Jewish people as a whole. He uses that phrase, the Jews, to refer to specifically the leaders and especially the religious leaders among the Jews. The elite men, the the, the people who had high positions in the ecclesiastical ordering of the Judaism of the day. That's who he's speaking about when he uses that phrase, the Jews. And they were offended that this man was carrying the bed on the Sabbath. Very simply, it says there in verse 10, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now friends, the Jewish people had not only the law of the Sabbath that was given to them in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, 
but they also had their traditions and man-made rules around that law that was given to them in the Old Testament. You see, the Sabbath, the day of rest, was commanded in the Old Testament. It was part of Israel's covenant obedience to not work on the seventh day. And the Sabbath was one of the things that sort of set Israel apart from other people in the ancient world. It is said that in ancient times, when visitors came and visited Israel, when they came into the land, they noticed three remarkable things. This is what they noticed. First of all, they noticed a sea without fish. That's the Dead Sea. Because you got this great big body of water out in the middle of the desert, but there's nothing living in it. It's too filled with minerals and salts to be in it. There's nothing that swims in it. So they noticed a sea without fish. That's very strange. Then secondly, they noticed a temple without an idol or a statue. This is very strange in the ancient world. Well, they had temples all over the ancient world. That was nothing strange to have a temple. But to have a temple without a statue or an idol in it, that was the focus of the worship. But no, the temple in Jerusalem had no idol because it represented the God that cannot be represented by an image. And then they noticed the third thing. They saw a sea without fish. They noticed a temple without an idol. And thirdly, they noticed a day without work. Because this was very strange in the ancient world. That people would take one day and seven and just take it off and not work. But that's how it was practiced, both among the ancient Jews and, of course, the Jews of this day. Because it was commanded. It was part of their covenant obedience. And in regard to this covenant obedience, we would say this as believers. That the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ perfectly completed the law for every believer and that the sabbath is one of those things that find its fulfillment he is our rest he is the end of the work that we do of trying to justify ourselves in god jesus christ is our sabbath and in his new covenant we remember the completion of god's work and the rest that he has for his people every day every day is a day of rest for the believer in jesus christ Every day is a day to say, Jesus completed the work, and I don't have to work to save myself. But friends, the idea of the Sabbath goes back further than the covenant that God made with Israel. The idea of the Sabbath is rooted all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, at the very beginning of all creation. You see, the idea of the Sabbath exists apart from the law that God gave to Israel and its fulfillment of that law in Jesus Christ. The idea of the Sabbath goes back to creation itself, where God says, I will give to man this pattern to work six days and to be off one day, to rest one day, because this is what humanity needs. The principle of the Sabbath is a gift of God to humanity. It goes beyond Israel. It goes beyond the old covenant. And I'll say it without any reservation that we live better. We work better. We experience everything better if we will take rest one day out of seven. That's how God's made us. That's how the creators made us. Now, as I say those words, I instantly think back to my calendar over the last month or six months or whatever it is. And I say, listen, this is something that I really need to be challenged with. For me, very personally, it's very difficult. It's very difficult, for example, when someone wants to meet with me and I see an empty day on my calendar to say, oh, I can't meet with you then. We'll have to make it for a week or 10 days or something because this day I'm not going to see anybody. I look at my calendar, the day's open. Look at it. I can meet with them. 
It's something that I have to give more attention to because honestly, with my life day in and day out, it's kind of hard to find a day when I don't preach, when I don't prepare to preach, when I'm not answering emails having to do with the work that God's given me to do, uh, when I don't um, meet with people in regard to the blessed work that God's given me. It's just something I need to work on. But I'll tell you this, for me and for you and for every one of us, we would live better, we would work better if we would observe God's law regarding the Sabbath. But friends, please understand, This Sabbath controversy that we see in the Gospels, because we don't only see it here in the book of John, we see it throughout the Gospels, that Jesus often conflicted with the religious leaders over the Sabbath. I want you to remember this. Jesus never broke God's commandment of the Sabbath. Never once. God gave a command for the Sabbath in the Old Testament. Jesus never broke that command. What he did break... And what he seemed to often delight in breaking were the man-made rules hoping to interpret God's command. Do you understand the difference between the two? There's God's command and then there's traditions and rules and things that man puts around the commandment of God. And whenever we replace the commandment of God with the rules of man, it's a bad thing. And that's why Jesus delighted in breaking those man-made regulations. And in the ancient world that Jesus lived with, they were filled with those. You know, the rabbis used to debate, can a man carry a needle in his robe on the Sabbath? Can a man wear an artificial leg on the Sabbath? Can a woman put in her false teeth on the Sabbath? Does that work? Is it not work? This is one thing they decided. They said, you cannot tie a knot in a rope on the Sabbath. That's doing work. But then they said, well, listen, people got to get dressed every day. That's not work. That's just part of what you got to do every day. So it was fine for a woman to tie a knot in her girdle on the Sabbath. That was okay. So what do you do if you got to get water out of a well on the Sabbath? How do you lower the bucket down? Well, it's very simple. You take your wife's girdle and you tie one end of it to the bucket... And you tie the other end of it to the note. And there you'd made two acceptable Sabbath knots. And you can lower the bucket down and get the water without breaking the Sabbath. Do you get the feel of this? How you have a whole system of man-made rules and interpretations that oftentimes get in the way of the fulfillment of what the Sabbath really is. And friends, it's done today. Now, this is a news item that's many years old. But I remember reading about it many years ago where a Jewish neighborhood uh, in the um, city of Jerusalem, an Orthodox neighborhood, they had the tragedy of a fire breaking out in an apartment on the Sabbath day. And so what would you normally do if a fire is breaking out in, the, in, the sa- on, on, uh, in an apartment? What, you call the fire department. What's the problem with that? Making a telephone call is forbidden by Orthodox Jews on the Sabbath. That's doing work. And so what did they have to do? Well, they had to consult their rabbi and say, Rabbi, is it okay for us to call the fire department? In the half hour that it took him to decide that it was okay to call the fire department, the fire spread to two or three more apartments. You see, that's kind of the way it is with man-made rules that can get in the way of God's law. So this is what I'm just trying to tell you, is that Jesus always kept God's law regarding the Sabbath, But he often offended human traditions and interpretations of the Sabbath. And that's exactly what it was when they saw this man carrying his bedroll. And they said, hey, you're doing work on the Sabbath. Now let's take a look at the next verse, verse 11, where it says, he answered them. He's trying to answer who it was that told him he could do this. He answered them, 
he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Notice what it says there in verse 11. The man identifies Jesus as he who made me well, and he's the one who told me to take up my bed and walk. Why am I carrying this bed? I'm carrying this bed because there was a man who healed me today. Hello, religious officials. I've been paralyzed for 38 years, and today I'm set free from that. Don't you think that's a little bit more significant than me carrying this bedroll? But to them, it wasn't more significant. They looked at the situation, and they said, Sabbath breaker. The man looked at the situation and said, someone made me whole of an affliction that I had suffered for 38 years from. Do you see the difference there? And I can imagine that it probably seems so strange to the man who had been healed. He probably thought of it this way. You know what? This morning, when I came to the Pool of Bethesda, I had to have four men carry me to the Pool of Bethesda. That was a lot of work for those men to do it. And if Jesus had not healed me for my affliction, those same four men would have had to carry me home. And that's a lot of work. I'm saving you work by being healed and just carrying this. To get the completely different attitude that the man had from the religious officials. And so they want to know. Verse 12. Who is the man who said to you take up your bed and walk? They wanted to know who is it that healed the crippled man? Who is it that has broken our conceptions of the Sabbath? And Jesus was nowhere to be found. If you take a look at verse 13. It says Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. By the way doesn't that tell you something about the healing work of Jesus Jesus did not do his healing work for the purpose of making himself famous. He didn't hang around and say, hey, it's me. Everybody, look at what I did. I just healed this man. No, Jesus realized something. He realized that there were perhaps hundreds of afflicted people around the pool of Bethesda, and it was not in the will of their father that all of them should be healed on that day. So Jesus said, I'm going to heal this one man, and I'm going to withdraw because I don't want to start a commotion there at the pool of Bethesda. So Jesus withdrew from the pool of Bethesda. The man didn't even know where the one who healed him was. But Jesus would find him. Look at what I mean here in verse 14. It says... Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worst thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Oh, two things to notice here. First of all, notice that in verse 14, it says that Jesus found him. There the man is up on the temple doing his thing. And can you imagine how great he feels? He goes, I'm walking I'm walking to the temple. I'm walking around just like anybody else. For 38 years, I have not been able to walk, but now I'm walking. This is so great. Great. Jesus sees him from a distance, and Jesus found him and walks up to him and says, friend, I'm so glad that you're healed. Are you enjoying the use of your legs? Yes, I'm enjoying the use of my legs. Mister, thank you so much for healing me. And then Jesus tells him something very sober. Did you see that in verse 14? He says, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Wow, there's two heavy things there. First of all, the implication, I'll agree it's not clear, but the implication is that that the man's paralysis was due to some prior sin. He said sin no more, and who knows what it was. 
I mean, if I was making a movie about this, I would take the flashback back 38 years before, and the man's a thief. He's trying to rob, you know, an upper story of an ancient thing. And maybe he feels like he has to escape because he's been discovered. And in his effort to escape, he falls from a roof and then he's paralyzed for 38 years. But it was all because he was a thief. Again, I don't know if that's a story. That's just sort of a fanciful thing. But it seems the implication here is that his paralysis was due to a sin. And so Jesus says, sin no more. Then he says something very sobering. Did you notice? Lest a worse thing come upon you. And friends, it's very easy for me and probably you to say, what could possibly be worse than to be paralyzed for 38 years? Friends, there are worse things. I say this as a word of comfort to anybody who's going through it physically right now. Maybe your body is racked by some kind of disease. Maybe you have some kind of injury. Maybe you have some kind of defect in your body that's making life very difficult. And it's very easy for you to feel, and I understand it completely, that listen, everything would be better. The most important thing in your life is to get that fixed. And it is important, and God cares about it. I don't mean to diminish that at all. But friends, do you realize that there are greater calamities that can happen to a person than the weakness or the difficulty that they have in their body? That there are eternal things that have to do with a soul. And it is a bad thing to be afflicted with paralysis for 38 years. Everybody here understands that. And we agree with that. And that's why the compassion of Jesus reached out to this man and healed him. But friends, there's eternity to consider as well. There's anybody who who is chained to eternal darkness for eternity who wouldn't gladly trade that for 38 years of paralysis. So this is what Jesus is reminding the man. Very sober words. Sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. But friends, there's something else that pops up in verse 15. Did you notice that? Verse 15 tells us, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus. What a weasel. Don't you kind of get that feeling? You know, the, the, the religious authorities confront him. Who is this man that told you to carry your bed on the Sabbath? And he goes, well, I don't know. I never learned his name. I don't see him around. Okay, great. You're off. But then when Jesus comes and meets him at the temple, then the man, as soon as he finds out it's Jesus, he can't wait to run to the religious authorities and, and blab on Jesus, to rat him out, to be the fink in this situation. We think, man, what kind of man are you? Why aren't you covering for Jesus just a little bit? Listen, I, I don't have much praiseworthy to say about what the man did in running to the authorities and telling him that it was Jesus. But I will make this observation. That man had a lot hanging over his head because if they thought that he was the Sabbath breaker, not only might he be excluded from the community of Israel, but friends, theoretically speaking, he could have been executed. Writings of the rabbis at that time said things like this. They said, if a man unintentionally breaks the Sabbath, then he can make an animal sacrifice and be forgiven of it. But if a man intentionally breaks the Sabbath, then he should be executed by stoning. Now, I'm not even saying that that was carried out in the ancient world. I'm just saying that, so to speak, that law was on the books. This man had a lot to be afraid of. He had a lot to be intimidated by when it came to the religious institutions of his day. And it makes me reflect. It makes me reflect with some sadness on the fact 
that religion can be used as a tool to oppress people and create fear in them and bondage in them. Isn't that true? Now, some of you say, well, yes, isn't that true? Look at these other religions in the world today. Look at them. Oh, yeah, boy, look at their oppression and look at the fear. Look at the bondage that they set people in. And friends, I get it. We see it in other religions around the world. But aren't there some even in the Christian world who rule by the authority of man, not the authority of God, who by the exalting of their religious traditions and structures, apart from the world of God, word of God, I should say, that they bring oppression and fear into people's life instead of the glorious liberty of the children of God. Friends, I believe that there is a place for for church authority and, and, and a place for authority among the people of God. I don't doubt that at all. Oh, but it has to be constantly submitted to Jesus Christ. It has to be constantly held with such a humility and such a loneliness of mind that it doesn't become a tool of oppression over other people, as happens sometimes. So, the religious leaders are going to meet Jesus now at verse 16. Look at the effect of their religious thinking. Verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Friends, do you read that and kind of shake your head a little bit? What was Jesus' crime here? He healed a man, and the man picked up his bed and walked home on the Sabbath day, which was less work than if people would have had to carry him home from the pool of Bethesda. But in the midst of that, they were so outraged because there was a challenge to their religious authority that not only did they persecute Jesus, but verse 16 says, and sought to kill him. You know, this anger and the hatred of the religious leaders, it's difficult to explain apart from seeing that it has a spiritual root. There was something so strong about their religious traditions, so strong about their religious systems that it made them want to kill Jesus for doing something wonderful. But friends, sometimes the strength of these religious customs and traditions Sometimes they are so strong and unexplainably so. I remember reading several years ago about what happened during the first great awakening, particularly in England. In the first great awakening, God raised up wonderful men like George Whitfield and John Wesley to do a great work for them. And they did something absolutely revolutionary in the day. You know what they did? They preached. They taught the word of God. They invited people to receive Jesus Christ. But they did it not inside of church buildings. They did it out in the open field. They did it under a tree. They did it out in the marketplace. And friends, this offended so many people in that day. They thought it was a sin to preach the word of God anywhere else but inside of a church. But men like George Whitfield and John Wesley, they said, well, where does the Bible say that? That's a tradition of man. We don't have to remain bound to that. And even though they were hated and despised for doing it, they did it for such great effect. Friends, we need to be careful, too, that we don't recognize that there aren't traditions and customs among us as a church. Sometimes people look at us at a Calvary Chapel here. Here we are together as a church. Well, you're non-traditional. Listen, every group has their traditions. 
Every group has their customs. It's not the existence of customs and traditions that are necessarily good or bad. It's how tightly you hold to them and whether or not you will hold them up against what God clearly reveals in his word. That's the difficulty and that was the problem that these religious leaders had. So look at how Jesus replied. Verse 17, it could have theoretically, and I'm speaking purely theoretically. Verse 17 could have read something like this. Oh, oh, no, guys, I'm sorry. I just want you to know I didn't really break the Sabbath. Or no, guys, I just want you to know that it's really okay that the Sabbath law on a, it could have been filled with excuses or explanations or rationalizations. Instead, look at how Jesus responds to the response to the religious leaders when he's accused of breaking the Sabbath. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Do you understand what Jesus said when he said those words? He said basically this. Well, guys, you accuse me of breaking the Sabbath. This is how it goes. Um, God works every day, doesn't he? And so do I. Their jaws about hit the floor. First of all, because he claimed the prerogative to work Just as God the Father works. Friends, you all know that the book of Genesis teaches us that God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. Friends, he rested from his work of active creation. God didn't stop doing anything on the seventh day. No, he gave that to us as a pattern. Do you understand God works every day? That God is there every day doing his work in this world, holding things together, sustaining, answering prayer, working among his people. God never takes a day off. He who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. That's the truth about God. And for Jesus to come along and say, that's me also. What a staggering statement. That's the first thing that shocked them. The second thing that shocked them was how he said it. He said, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Jesus claimed to have a unique relationship with God the father in heaven. In other words, there's a sense in which every human being is a son or a daughter of God in some sense. But Jesus said, my relationship with the father goes far beyond that. I am the unique son of God. And ladies and gentlemen, the Jewish leaders at that time understood Jesus perfectly notice their response now in verse 18 therefore the jews sought to all the more to kill him because he not only broke the sabbath but also said that god was his father making himself equal with god two things god works and i work and he is my father in a unique way The Jewish leaders at that time understood him perfectly. And what was their reaction? We have to kill this man. That's what's found in verse 18. Friends, Jesus claimed that God was his father in a special sense. He claimed to be the son of God. Actually, if you want to talk about it in a theological sense, Jesus is speaking some very sophisticated theology. He is not the same as the father. There's a distinction between the father and the son. They are not the same person, but they are God, one and the same. And when you add the Holy Spirit to that, that's where we come up with our understanding of the Trinity. Or maybe you should better more accurately say the triunity, that there is one God in three persons. But that's for another matter to discuss. What's important for us to see is that Jesus clearly proclaimed that he was God. And when the leaders of that day, the religious leaders understood that, Jesus didn't say, oh, no, 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 you misunderstand me completely. I didn't claim to be God. No, 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 no. 
Instead, we're going to see, not just in verse 18, but in the verses that follow, which we're going to get to next week, Jesus said, you are absolutely right. I am God. You've heard me say it a lot. I, I think probably more than 10 times the number of fingers on my hands. I've said it during this season of going through the Gospel of John already. I am so astounded by the fact that the Bible teaches us that a man who had hair just like us, shoulders just like us, uh, toenails just like us, who walked on this earth and who ate food and slept at night, that the Bible's so bold to say that that man was and is God who created heaven and earth. It's an astounding statement. And whether you agree with that statement or disagree with it, this is what I want you to understand this morning. I want you to understand that Jesus clearly makes it. That Jesus said of himself, I am God. And that's what the Bible teaches about him. Friends, we kind of come to a place where we want to make some practical application of what the scriptures say. And that's a wonderful thing. We need to make practical application. So let me make a few practical applications and then I'll come to the biggest application last. It's kind of a preacher's trick to save the biggest thing for last. Well, first of all, it's a practical application to say that God gave us the Sabbath and we need to take one day in seven as rest. This is something that I need to remember just as much as anybody else. That's one very practical application. For a second application, we can remind ourselves that man's rules are never greater than God's words, even the religious rules. And we need to be able to make that distinction between the rules of man and the word of God. And be careful that we never put them on an equal level. No, what God says and commands is infinitely more important than man's rules, even if those rules are meant to understand what God says. Thirdly, we are cautioned by the statement that religious authority can find itself in opposition to Jesus. Do you understand that that's true? And friends, this should make us pray for those who are leaders in God's family. It should make us be very careful and sober-minded if God has given us a position of leadership because it's very possible for religious authorities to find themselves in opposition to Jesus, and that's a bad place. They need to stay humble. They need to keep a lowliness of mind in everything that they do submitted to Jesus Christ. But the final point of application is that Jesus is God. You say, wait a minute, how is that a point of application? No, follow me along with this. First of all, I think you need to believe it. I think you need to believe it. You need to believe it because this is what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, that he is God. Not about you, but personally, I think you should say it. I think it's a very useful thing for you to say it, even if it's in a whispered voice, Jesus is God. Now, I'm not going to lead us all in a cheer that says Jesus is God. Do you want to know why? Because I don't want there to be an ounce of manipulation in it. But I think right now where you're seated, you should just say it right now in a quiet voice under your own breath, even if you had to whisper it, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He is God. And you should believe it. But here's the point. This is where it really gets down to application. It's not just that he's God in a theological or a theoretical sense. Do you know why it's important for you to understand that Jesus is God? So that you can say, Jesus, be God over my life. Be God over my marriage. Be God over my career. 
Be God over my checkbook. Be God over my relationships. Be God over me, body, soul, and spirit. Be God over my fears, over my hopes. Be God over my past. Be God over my future. Jesus Christ is God, and he wants to have his reign as deity over every aspect of your life, and there's nothing more practical or applicational than you understanding that and giving that to him right now. So, Father, that's what we pray. We pray with full understanding that Jesus is God. And I pray that you'd help every person in this room to say it before they leave this room, that they would say it, Lord, with confidence in their heart, believing the scriptures, Jesus is God. But, Lord, then I pray that you would help them to take the step beyond the theoretical and the theological and that they would take it down to the intensely practical that Jesus is God over their life, over every aspect, and that he is invited to rule and reign in the midst of the individual life. Would you do that, Lord, in our midst? Stir every heart to that faith here this morning. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.